Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Mike, and today we are brought to you by KillCliff.com. If you're looking for a full-spectrum natural energy drink that's full of flavor, make sure you check out KillCliff.com. Look, if you're looking for uh, a, a kickstart to your workout, I use their Ignite, the quick, clean energy. My favorite flavor is that lemon berry or that cherry limeade. As well as sustaining workouts, they have a sustained endurance called Endure um, that could sustain your workout with the right amount of carbohydrates as well as the post-recovery version, which is called Recovery, that's full of vitamins. Not a lot of energy drinks do this. Um, not a lot of energy drinks are full of vitamins and minerals and the good stuff. And so make sure you check out Kill Cliff. Not only do they uh, make awesome energy drinks, but they also support the Navy SEAL Foundation. We're all about veteran advocacy. Go to killcliff.com and use Philcraft15. That's Philcraft15 to save 15%. Also, this podcast is brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee Company. One of the best coffee companies in the universe, Black Rifle Coffee Company, is veteran special operations owned and operated. Uh, they're operating right now the good state, the great state of Texas, and they do a whole bunch of, of the same things where they're helping veterans. Um, they just supported the best ranger competition, but on top of that, obviously make a good product. I like all their swag. I got their mugs. Um, I'm buying into it because not only do I support veteran-owned businesses, but they have a great product, a great product line. I like their MCT, ghee, uh, and coffee blend. I'm a big fan of that that keto diet and uh, getting that added to my uh, uh, workout routine and my morning fasting uh, is key for me staying in keto. Uh, appreciate all the things they, those guys do. Good, great guys at BlackRifleCoffeeCompany.com. Make sure you use Philcraft20. That's two zero to save 20% on checkout. Uh, that's our biggest coupon code offered. Also, this podcast is sponsored by TriarchSystems.com. You know, I just talked about my recent trip to Laramie, Wyoming. Big shout out to CJ and uh, Eli up at the ranch in Laramie. I uh, had an awesome opportunity to shoot pistol and um, carbine and teach out there. Had law enforcement present. It was a great course, great opportunity. Uh, when I was using my pistol, I was actually demonstrating with a pistol that I've been testing and evaluating recently. Um, and it failed. Uh, it failed miserably a few times. And so I put it away and went to my trusty Triarch 17 Charlie, which I use not only as my uh, work gun that I teach with, but also as a gun that I use uh, for self-protection. Big fan of Triarch and all the things they do because they make guns that are aesthetically pleasing, but with all the utility, durability, and function. And I'm all about that, especially when it comes to self-defense. Make sure you check them out. It's TR. I-A-R-C systems.com and make sure you use Philcraft on checkout to save. Yeah, big shout out to our sponsors. Appreciate all that you guys do for us at Philcraft Survival. So today we're uh, talking about a few things of note and I'm, I'm doing a, a podcast every once in a while called the Tactical Review. And the Tactical Review is a way for me to communicate about some things that I'm seeing kind of trending on social media and things that... Um, you know, I, whether it's I have beef with it or I, I kind of want to work through an issue, there's a whole bunch of things that happen uh, over the course of running Philcraft Survival and focused on, uh, you know, preparedness where I want to flush out uh, the conversation and make sure that I get the fresh notes to you guys. Maybe it's something that I see. Maybe it's something that I, I learned. Uh, I'm always learning, always grinding. And so, I want to make sure I disseminate that information to you guys. So this this uh, actual episode is going to be about uh, the tactical review. Um, on top of that, 
on this podcast, we're going to answer a few questions that I got yesterday on my personal page. It's mike.a.glover um, on Instagram. And every once in a while, I'll do a live feed and I'll talk about some things that are going on, um, but also ask for input from the audience that's listening. And so when I'm doing that, uh, I like to take those questions and then do the Q&A and then answer them on the podcast so I could uh, kind of spread the love and, and answer it for the masses as opposed to just one or two people who are asking the question. Um, in addition to that, I, I posted a few posts today on Philcraft Survival as well as my personal page. If you guys aren't following us on Philcraft Survival, it's at Philcraft Survival on Instagram, also on Facebook, uh, YouTube as well. Uh, but I posted the live feed on this discussion that I had about the Virginia uh, mass shooter in Virginia Beach that winded up killing 12 um, wonderful human beings that were gunned down uh, needlessly o over his obvious issues. And I never want to kind of politicize these issues, but I want to use them as opportunities to learn. I mean, there's there's always opportunities to learn from these tragic events, and that's I mean, when you look at due diligence and doing right by the victims, um, it's doing the best we can to make sure that there aren't no any more victims uh, the next go round. Because, you know, look, mass shootings, according to the FBI, is, you know, a shooting that involves four or more killed um, during the shooting. And it, it would seem like it's a mass epidemic based on the media spin of things. It's typically a political issue, just like a uh, the media likes to spin stuff, but the reality is it's rare. It's a rare event. Um, in fact, in one weekend, um, in, in a couple weekends, uh, you could see the same accumulation of casualties of being killed in uh, the inner city of Chicago, for example. But that doesn't may, mean it's you know any less noteworthy to discuss and talk about and flush out best practices when looking at and active shooting. One of the things that stood out to me that I posted on Philcraft Survival was the fact that, um, you know, the everybody in the government building it was a public works government building was utilizing a key card to gain access to individual doors. And at one point, the law enforcement officers that arrived on scene, who were responding and running to the a gunfight or to the gunfire, uh, had problems accessing and potentially breaching a door. And so they didn't have the card. They were looking for the card, but they winded up breaching it anyway. And so, um, you know, I, I would like to talk about that. I talked about in the live feed. And in fact, I just posted a video on YouTube. Um, but in addition to that, uh, the shooter, uh, for the first time in a really long time, I think when I looked it up, um, it, there's been few instances where an active shooter has used a suppressed uh, handgun or rifle. And in this case, the shooter had a 45 caliber pistol as well as a 40 caliber pistol that were legally bought and uh, decided to to uh, uh, start this mass shooting with and one of the 45s the 45 that he actually used was suppressed and so I wanted to flesh out that as well to make sure you guys understand what that means the media would have you understand that that would mean it would, it, it's silent it's a silencer uh, but that's not the the reality so again, if you're tuning into this, this is the Tactical Review Pod podcast that I'm going to do periodically when talking about kind of the uh, current state of things and answer and debunk a whole bunch of uh, issues that we're dealing with uh, in this realm. I, I just want to you know highlight the fact that whenever I go to training uh, and I teach pistol gunfighter um, or or gunfighter carbine, I always learn something, 
And you know, I want you guys to know and understand this. The way my brain works, I'm not the subject matter expert here in any one thing. I have a broad experience, you know, obviously a special operations background and a contracting background. And then I've been teaching preparedness and I've kind of done that uh, my whole entire military career. Um, but I'm definitely not the subject matter expert, but I like engaging in the conversation and extracting the information and kind of assimilating the best practice as I see it. But again, I want you to understand that I always uh, have gone into tactical conversations or tactics conversations with an open mind. And I think that's the way you have to be. I mean, if you're close-minded to tactics, which change daily, uh, a, a, a friend of mine just started a tactical company, and uh, I noticed in, in the notes he was talking about the expiration date on tactics. It's absolutely correct. There is an expiration date on tactics. And so they're not definitive. They're not end-all, be-all. They are flexible and shapeable, and it depends on the enemy's tactics. And uh, that's one reason I want to highlight this Virginia mass shooting, because Things are different in that in that situation. I mean, he used number one. Let's let's talk about that. Uh, the first thing we need to to recognize is apparently there was no signs that this guy suffered from mental health issues. And think about that, man. I mean, really think about that. No signs or symptoms where people were like, "Oh, I knew this dude was going to be the guy." You know, uh, in fact, he was noted as being a satisfactory worker who was a good guy. Uh, no warning signs. In fact, the morning that he decided to commit the mass shooting last week, he resigned via email. He simply said, sent an email and said, based on the things that are happening uh, personally, he would have to resign. And so he said he put in basically his two-week notice. There was even a response by the company that I thought was a decent response. It wasn't egregious. It said, hey, sorry, I hope your personal issues get worked out. Uh, your official last date will be this this specific date. I think it was uh, they noted it as being 14 June would 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 be his last day, and so when he showed up, in fact, um, he actually greeted some coworkers, and then he was noted as being in the bathroom. He brushed his teeth. I'm assuming at some point he went back to his vehicle, and then he grabbed his guns and they started the mass shooting. Uh, but no warning right now. Um, uh, no apparent motive in this case, but uh, you know, that's how deeply rooted mental health issues work themselves out. Now, who, who knows, you know, uh, there's been rumors that he's, uh, he's Muslim and there might've been a, a twist on that, but I, I won't go down that rabbit hole because I don't want to speculate here. But what I will say is, you know, people can be very good at masking their mental health issues. And then when things kick off, they just kick off. And so when you're thinking about, you know, how do you prepare for a mass shooting, I wouldn't get bogged down in the weeds when thinking about all the intricacies of how people uh, systematically come to the conclusion where they decide in their lives that there's no, nothing worth living for and that they're going to take out as many people as possible. Instead, I would focus my energy on uh, how am I going to be offensive or reactive against somebody who decides to do this? And then how am I going to be better prepared for this? So uh, let's talk about something. Number one, the key code entry. He had, a, he had an access card. Now, of, of something worthy to note is that the majority of active shootings or mass shootings, the majority come from somebody who works in those specific organization or businesses. And they are typically disgruntled workers. And, you know, the, the, 
the SOP for them is they, um, you know, they get in an argument, they lose their job, uh, they get bullied. Things lead up to them making the hasty or deliberate decision to con- conduct violence. And when that happens, they typically do it inside the buildings, and they wind up taking out as many people as possible. In that, uh, they typically do take their own lives. In that, um, they have a plan, um, uh, typically a plan to to induce as many mass casualties as possible. And so they know the lay of the land, right? They understand the pattern of life that everybody that work that works there. They understand the vulnerabilities. They understand the exit routes. I mean, uh, you take the Virginia Tech shooter, for example, who killed 30-plus students and teachers in Virginia Tech. When he did so, um, he locked the doors, locked himself with chains and locks inside of that school before he started his his mass uh, shooting rampage. So typically, it's somebody on the inside. And now when you look at infrastructure and physical and uh, physical security specifically, you know, a lot of people... Uh, use access codes or they use cipher locks to be able to gain access to different parts of buildings, especially if there's secure information and physical property to protect. But I'm not a big fan of that. I I don't like, especially in the inner workings of a building, uh, limiting people's movement. Now, obviously, there, there are exceptions to this. If we're talking like a SCIF where there's compartmentalized information, uh, that's secret or, uh, or protected, you have to protect that information. What I'm talking about is the access and ability to move everywhere along the building. Now, a public works building where they're protecting public information, that's one thing, but you know, the security should be at the front of the building, and then internally, you shouldn't over-secure the building and limit the freedom of movement of individuals. One, it's a, a work uh, optimization thing, you know, inefficiency, but obviously in this case, Police officers hit the wall. Um, they hit hit doors where they couldn't bypass them. They didn't have the key code because they didn't do a, a friendly coordination with uh, the local security, which is going to happen. I mean, the average active shooting lasts 12 minutes. The first responders on the scene aren't worried about doing a coordination link up. They're worried and trained. I know this because I train uh, law enforcement to do this stuff. They're worried... Uh, to get in as fast as possible and move to the crisis point. The crisis point typically is identified where the shooting is taking place. That's that's where they're moving, meaning they're hastily moving, not exactly doing deliberate close quarters battle while they're flowing through these buildings. They're bypassing a lot of things, trying to get to where the shooting's taking place to end it as quick as possible or to disrupt it as quick as possible uh, to stop the carnage. And, you know, when when you look at this situation, this person knew the vulnerabilities and was able to go in specific meeting rooms and and built in parts of this building on the second floor specifically. I think where he created the most carnage and was confronted by police. Um, but I want you guys to think about that in your practices and protocol, even in your own corporate or government infrastructure. You know, where you work and how you move in that workplace are important things for you to analyze as an individual when thinking about preparedness. Um, You know, we can't always depend on the infrastructure, on the institution to be responsible for giving us a better understanding of the best practices in security. 
a lot of people do do that. I mean, they, they do depend on the institution. In fact, uh, a lot of people do that because they could point the finger easily and you know decide who's at fault. But when it comes down to the literal uh, manifestation of reality front-kicking you in the face during an active shooting, the only person who's responsible uh, for the outcome, for the individual outcome, is the person in their own skin. And so you have to analyze and assess information. You have to be able to be responsible for your own actions um, or inactions. And I think that self-reliance that we constantly drive home at Philcraft Survival is a, a, a best practice for everybody outside of the institution. Um, something else that was discussed on my personal page this morning was communicating about the fact that the shooter had a suppressor um, called a can, called a silencer, etc. Uh, the first thing I want you guys to understand is a silencer or a suppressor is not necessarily meant to silence the gun. In fact, that is highly unlikely, especially with higher caliber, higher muzzle velocity weapon systems. For example, an AR-15 that's pushing around at over 3,000 feet per second, you know, here's, let me break it down even more. A round that travels at the speed of sound, it's, you know, over 1,100 feet per second. When a round is traveling at the speed of sound, it breaks the sound barrier. When it does that in individual rounds, outside of the snap that you hear in the, the uh, striking of the primer, the combustion explosion you hear in the detonation of the gunpowder in the round, um, you are going to hear a sharp and distinct snap or crack from the round exiting uh, the, the front end of the barrel at the speed of sound, breaking literally the sound barrier. They're typically, from the gun, the person who's holding the gun's perspective, typically that's synonymous. That's, that's in one motion where they break the trigger, they hear an explosion. On the other end of the barrel, meaning if you're a good guy being shot at by a bad guy, you are going to hear that snap as well. Depending on the uh, environment, the close proximity, the distance from, from the shooter, um, you're going to hear that snap in different versions. So I, I want you to understand that when we're looking at pistol calibers, like a 45 ACP, for example, a, a 45 out of the, out of the barrel uh, is typically shot as long as it's not plus P or plus up in muzzle velocity or power factor, it's not going to be traveling at the speed of sound. And so it's already subsonic. Remember, supersonic is traveling at the speed of sound. Subsonic is below the, the speed of sound. And so what, you, what the difference is, is when a round is shot out of a barrel subsonic, you're going to hear the explosion, explosion or combustion taking place in the ignition. Uh, it's, a, it's a strike of a primer, the explosion of combustion, and then leaving the barrel. You're going to hear a whole bunch of loud stuff. It's going to sound loud. But the difference now is, when a round is subsonic, meaning lower than the speed of sound, and you put a suppressor on it uh, or a silencer on it or a can on it, that, that can or suppressor is going to take that round traveling through it and baffle the amount of sound or the, the registration of decibels, meaning it's going to be quieter 
when breaking through that suppressor and reducing or dissipating uh, that distinct crack. And so that's important to note because, look, I remember, for example, when we were in uh, Iraq early on, I used to do joint ops with the, the Navy. And I remember going on ops. And the, you know these are young Navy guys. I was young myself. And we were doing combat operations. And you know a lot of the times we went surreptitious or quiet approaching a target. And as we approached the target, there would be lights, street lights on. And so the options for street lights typically were, if you had access to it, you would just unscrew it. I mean, you don't want illuminated street lights. If you could... If you could affect it, a lot of the times we didn't get bogged down by streetlights because we had the flow of movement, the momentum of movement. And so we would set up for the the assault, and then uh, these Navy guys would use their Mark 23s, this big HK SOCOM um, weapon system, and it had a big can on it. It had a big, that's what he said, had a big can on it that was like huge, and it would baffle the noise. But those things were not quiet. In fact, to the surprise of the Navy who were shooting at them and going, oh my God, where dogs would kick off and they would bark and then it would compromise the assault. You go from a deliberate, surreptitious assault to, oh shit, now we got to hastily run to the front door and you know blow it in or kick it in and it kicked things off. And so uh, I want you guys to understand that that's how these work. You know, when you have a muzzle break on the end of a weapon system, it's meant to dissipate the gas, and and there's a couple of reasons for that. When it dissipates the gas, um, it keeps the muzzle flatter, and so you won't see as much muzzle flip or potentially felt recoil, and so it reduces uh, and dissipates the recoil, but keeps the front muzzle or front sight on the target. So it kind of reduces. So it doesn't kind of it reduces your split time in between shots. So if you had a, you know, a good muzzle break on the end of an AR-15 and it was dissipating the gas properly, you could potentially shoot it faster. And a lot of people don't understand that about weapon systems. In fact, you know, I like to look at the way that politicians affect policy based on their perception. A lot of it uh, is is misexplained and it's a lot of disinformation. And they're, they're making the wrong move on guns. I don't think there should be moves on guns being that I, I support the Second Amendment and don't think there should be the overregulation of any guns, period. I, I don't care, uh, you know, period. That's, and I'm definitive about that. So when they do go after guns, they focus on the wrong things. And so when the article came out in AP News and a couple other uh, periodicals of media talking about the suppressor and then interviewing these uh, politicians, I'm, the first thing that goes in my goes on in my head, I'm like, dude, they're gonna they're gonna shit can uh, uh, suppressors. They're gonna get rid of them because of their disinformation and right. They're they're politically aligning uh, th- their uh, genre, their masses, their following in order to get reelected. I mean, that's part of the process in politics. That's part of the dirty game that's played. Um, but they're not they're not educated. So when that muzzle brake is masked with a baffled uh, suppressor, in this in this sense, a forty-five in this case, a forty-five ACP doesn't have a muzzle brake. More than likely, he wasn't shooting a brake, um, meaning he wasn't dissipating any gas from the front end of the gun. So that suppressor is acting as a muzzle brake, and so 
it will not only quiet the gun, but it will get rid of that snap, that definitive crack of it breaking the sound barrier. But in addition to that, it will bat baffle a lot of the flash that comes off the front end of that gun, redu- reducing muzzle flip. Uh, there's another element where if it's a huge can on the front end of the gun, um, there's other problems like the weight of the front end of the gun. Uh, but make it more difficult to pinpoint potentially where the shooter is at. Now, I think that's the intent of this guy. I mean, he legally purchased the firearm, legally submitted a uh, a tax stamp for the suppressor. I think he waited eight months or something like that, which is generally um, the average, and then got his suppressor. But I'm assuming that when he went into this gunfight with this particular pistol, that he had the intent of masking his his uh, his gunfire. So I trained and I have trained law enforcement for a de- over a decade, and I've done a lot of active shooting training. Specifically, I've used simunitions to uh, train law enforcement. Now, simunitions is that force-on-force munition. Uh, simunitions act- is actually a specific company that I'm a, I'm a fan of, uh, but it's simulated shooting. Essentially, it's a bullet that's not real. And you could use real guns to load this uh, to uh, load this ammo into, and then you typically have to replace the barrel. So what this bullet is is imagine the back of the round has a primer, has brass, uh, but has a reduced amount of gunpowder, just enough to fire the projectile uh, projectile at a certain feet per second, and it's a couple hundred feet per second. But this projectile is not a bullet; it's a plastic a piece of plastic that when it hits. Uh, body mass or whatever it hits, it it bursts and turns into a uh, a marking of some some kind. Usually, it's fluorescent, you know, blue, red, green, or something like that. And it's like a detergent material; it's a powdered material. But it hurts like hell when you get shot with it. Um, obviously, reinforcing during the training process uh, that you had made contact with the enemy or where the shot placement is for the good guys who were shooting the bad guys. And so when you do this force-on-force training, you have to wear protective equipment because you get shot in the face or the eye, you'll lose an eye. I've seen guys lose eyes. I've seen I, I've been shot myself. I still have scars on my body from simunitions. But there's different variants of this, right? There's Serta, Sims. Um, there's uh, uh, X, or I forget what is it called. FX is the other one. So when you use this, uh, the reason I bring this up is because when you train with this, uh, you could start uh, a active shooting scenario by initiating by shooting guns in a specific room, and the law enforcement officer officers have to move to that room to be able to get there. Um, and so they do it based off sound. Law enforcement officers, when they show up on the scene of an active shooting, they don't don ear protection, right? So they're not rolling around with ear protection. And if they if they're like a SWAT guy or SRT guy, they might throw on peltors. But Peltors are omnidirectional, meaning they don't specifically give you the direction of what they're hearing. Like if you put on a good, if you could put on a pair of Peltors that have an audible setting where you could hear like people talking, but it it, it dissipates all the loud noise that are, that's going to cause damage. You can't specifically hear where that's coming from because it's registering in your ears, omni or around you, and so it's hard to pinpoint where things are at. Uh, regardless of that. If, uh, if agencies show up, if they're shooting simunitions during this scenario in the back room, for example, it's subsonic. So what you're going to hear is the, the pop or the snap 
of the uh, primer being broken because the firing pin's hitting it, and then you're going to hear the combustion. And then you're going to hear potentially the gun cycling. It's not loud. Honestly, it's, it's, it's like the sound of a clap. It's, I mean, it's a, a loud clap, and that's it. Sometimes not even loud. So there will be a distinct difference between a person shooting subsonic 45 and then somebody shooting a real gun, not a real gun, I'm talking, I'm comparing it to simunitions, but somebody shooting a 45 ACP with no suppressor or can. Now, I will tell you this. I brought up the conversation on my personal page because I want people's inputs, but the reality is more than likely in this case, it was nominal, uh, meaning it had little effect because the law enforcement, law enforcement officers who showed up on the scene immediately identified where the shooter was at and they engaged him. And they got into a gunfight. In fact, the gun, uh, uh, the guy who was the uh, assailant, the bad guy, the active shooter was shot through a door. It sounds like from a report, shot through a door, fatally shot through the door as the police officers and him were um, exchanging gunfire. I want to tell you this um, because I want you to understand that it probably had little effect. And so when the media spins this out of control, like, the guy was, you know, had the advantage, and then he was shooting silenced. It's not the case. Uh, I actually brought it up, and uh, some people get, took a f- offense to it. And I'm okay with offense as long as it's, it's respectful. I want people to get involved in the conversation because I want to flush out the ideas of people's perspective on this. The majority, from my take on my personal page, the majority of people um, aren't ignorant to the fact that it probably didn't matter. And the reality is it probably didn't matter in this case because more than likely before the police officer showed up, he had killed um, his, his, the amount of, of people he was going to kill in the first place, which wound up being 12, five females and seven males. You know, rest their souls. Uh, you know, I feel bad for their families and I feel bad um, for the, the victims themselves uh, being in that situation. And I want to say thank you for the courageous efforts of the law enforcement officers who selflessly, I mean, these dudes are getting paid, um, you know, middle, middle of the road salaries um, to throw and propel themselves in these dangerous situations to protect and defend life. And when you th- really think about that, at, at what cost that is, they're, they're potentially sacrificing everything and they get crapped on a lot from a lot of people. And I'm a big big supporter of law enforcement officers and first responders because they don't get enough credit for what they do. But I want to say thank you to those law enforcement officers. In fact, one of them was shot in the chest and he was saved by his bulletproof vest. Fortunately, no officers were killed uh, during the exchange of gunfire. Um, So yeah, I want you to to know that that's the reason I communicate about that. Another thing I want you to understand about this situation is the protocol for active shootings. And if you guys are just tuning in because I'm doing this live on Phil Krause Survival, I'm doing a tactical review of all the tactics leading up to the last time that I talked about tactics because I think it's important to constantly flush these things out as things happen uh, in our world uh, that we can discuss and also answer some questions about tactics uh, in the second part of this podcast. So the U.S. government, the federal government, uses a protocol called run, hide, and fight. Um, and I want you guys to understand why I think this sets a bad precedence for setting people up for failure in an active shooting. So we already talked about mass shootings and, and the, the MO for who it usually is 
you know, it's typically an employee, disgruntled employee, mental health issues, um, middle-aged male um, within, within 12 minutes. Well, in addition to that, the shooter goes from uh, room to room committing as much chaos uh, and as many casualties as possible in a short period of time. I mean, they're not there to uh, stretch this thing out. They want to do it as fast as possible. And so when they do that, if you're following the protocol, uh, the first thing you have to do is run, according to the federal government. When you run, um, hastily run, you were, you are potentially running yourself into a bad situation. And here's here's my take on it. When when I had privates as a squad leader in the infantry, when I had special forces guys as a team sergeant or sergeant major in special operations, there's some things that you have to uh, instill as an immediate action because any lull in thinking about something or or uh, or, or trying to come to a cognitive conclusion could set you up for failure, meaning reactive contact, for example, which is a, a classic FM 7-8 battle drill, reactive contact. You know, you take fire, you respond with fire while you're bounding in a three to five second rush looking for cover and concealment. And then when you get to that position and uh, observe where the fire's coming from, then you call out direction and distance and then the composition or disposition of the enemy, maybe even both. So maybe if I'm walking in the woods and I take contact, I immediately suppress the enemy, try to get as many rounds as I can as fast as possible while I'm maneuvering my physical body to cover concealment, and then call out maybe 12 o'clock, 300 meters, five bad guys with a PKM, or something like that. And that process or that thing takes place as an immediate action, meaning not thinking or not overthinking the tactic. And so when you give an acronym to somebody, you're expecting that they are cutting out a lot of thinking, right? A lot of thinking through problems, especially when you introduce stress. The military does it because we, we have to preserve time. We are in the business of, of uh, shooting, moving, and communicating as fast as possible, and any lull in that time could lead to casualties on our side. And when you, when you look at civilians who might not have any training whatsoever— they are going to take the acronym at face value and, and maybe literally. And so when they hear a gunshot and they, and they go into a fight or flight scenario, meaning uh, their body dumps adrenaline and cortisol and they get stressed out and then they, fight or, they have the option to fight or flight, they are going to flight without thinking, meaning running on autopilot. And you know, as a primal instinct and as a primal or ancestral um, process, that's meant to save your ass. Um, but that's meant to save your ass when fighting like a saber-toothed tiger or a predator in, the, in a natural world. Well, in our worlds, the worlds that we live in now, they're a little bit more, they, they're not even a little bit, they're a lot more complex than just grossly maneuvering my body, my physical body to save my ass. I need to retain oxygen. I need to optimize uh, the oxygen that's flowing into my body to give my eyes the opportunity to observe. I need to be able to to work with my fine motor skills, you know, my digits, to be able to technically do things like call the police, um, like communicate to somebody that you're in distress, uh, to maneuver your physical body uh, with a firearm in your hand. Um, so these things, um, in the primal sense, don't lend themselves to survival. And so... When you think about that, 
Uh, think about the, the lowest common denominator in this situation, which has no training. The person has no training in mitigating or reducing stress or uh, fighting for their lives. They've never been in a fight um, ever in their life. Think about what an acronym would do to them when they don't even understand the process. Run. Okay, just run? Well, what does that mean? Do I run? Just find the, 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 the quickest route in, uh, in one direction and run? Um, and then the second part of that is hide. Now, here's where I have a huge problem with this without context. You know, it's, it's, it's easy for the government to say run, hide, fight, but it's problematic in the sense that when you hide, you typically cower. And I don't mean in the fearful sense, meaning you don't have to be cowering underneath a desk shaking. But when you hide, you change your physical posture and set yourself up for failure and not being able to counter or combat the threat. So if, if I told a kid to hide in a house, how is he going to hide? They're going to hide in the, the, the crevice, the nook, the cranny, uh, the closet, the underneath the sink, um, behind a door, and they're going to get as low as possible, not setting themselves up to fight. And I think it's ironic that they go from hide to fight, even run to hide. I mean, so you're telling somebody to run, and if they don't have, I'm assuming they assume that they're supposed to run, and if they get out, they get out. But if they don't, and they have nowhere to go, they need to hide. I, would, I, would, I have a lot of issues with that. In fact, let's say you're running down a hallway, and you know you're going to run into the active shooter, so you have to peel off into a room. If you hide in that room, you are going to set yourself up to get shot in the face and die. Why? Because you're not in a posture to be able to combat the threat with a gun that has a gun. So let's say you hide in that room and you hide under a desk. Well, one, you don't have visual recognition of when the person enters the room, more than likely. Two, you're, you're cowering in a position that is not advantageous because you're not in close proximity to the barrel to be able to control the gun or combat the person with the gun. Uh, and three, you've checked yourself out from the advantage. Okay, so let me, let me instead give you the example of, let's say you hide, but you decide to fight. Well, if you go inside of a room, you might want to be in the threshold of, the, not in the threshold, but near the threshold of that room, because you know that when that bad guy comes through that door, that you're going to be able to, to attack them because you are in a point of domination that's in a blind spot. Right, and when in a center-fed room, you have two blind spots to the left and to the right. There's a there's an angle that you can't see, no matter how much you pie off that door, that you could hide. It's called the cut. We call it the cut of the room. That's typically one. That's typically where we throw flashbangs to be able to throw a flashbang on top of somebody in the dead space of that room. But it's also during a simultaneous clear during CQB where we drive the barrels of our gun because that's where the threat is potentially hiding. And so if you haven't set yourself in that position, uh, or if you do set yourself in that position, the bad guy might get sucked into the middle of that room. Um, they might not be doing CQB as an individual. And then you have the advantage of taking them by surprise, as opposed to you hiding in a closet. They open the closet expecting somebody to be there with a gun oriented in your direction, and they just simply shoot you. So um, fight as a last resort, I don't recommend. Now, what do I recommend? Well, here's what I recommend. One, you never depend on the U.S. government to give you the protocol to save your own ass. That's one. 
Being self-reliant means using your cognitive processes, assessing and analyzing your environment, and then making your own protocol in your specific situation based on your capabilities, based on your individual area of operation or environment, and then based on uh, a, a number of factors that we'll discuss. So the, the acronym that I like to use is an acronym called OFF, Observe, Fight and Flee, or Flee and Fight. It could be used inversely, and it's synonymous. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's one and the same. And here's, what, here's, here's the breakdown. Observe. When you observe, you are not just glancing. You are taking in information, utilizing your senses. And I talked about this on the live feed, and there's a, a, a snapshot of this on YouTube in a 30-minute cap. But observation for me is stop, look, listen, and smell. Yes, smell, even smell. The smell of gunpowder is very distinct. So we do something called seals. Stop, look, listen, and smell every single time we go into an unknown environment. Even in a low-vis environment, we're operating and uh, we're not overtly operating as a military figure. I might go to a cafe in the middle of Libya and sit at that cafe and I might stop, look, listen, and smell and observe my environment. Why is this beneficial? Well, it's beneficial because it gives you the opportunity to take in all the information that you have around you, quickly assess that information, and then make a decision, a better decision. So in this case, let's say you're in the hallway and you're off into an office space and you hear gunshots. Well, it's not just waiting till the moment in which a gunfight or an active shooter kicks off. It is all the pre-deliberate uh, injects and planning processes that you implemented some kind of service and support to facilitate your survival, i.e., uh, you, did, you thought about it beforehand. You did a rehearsal with your friends around you beforehand. You actually exited your routes and some alternate routes outside of the building as a rendezvous point um, to be able to break contact. Remember, this, this tactic is breaking contact. This is a breaking contact drill. If you think there's an active shooter, you have a decision to make. And this is like, we call it a go, no-go criteria, meaning there's a specific criteria that's going to tell me whether or not I need to stay or go. When it comes to an active shooter, if you think it's an active shooter, curiosity is what killed the cat. So you trying to figure out what that noise is to confirm or deny it might set you up for failure. So let's say you're in the back room and you hear what sounds like an active shooter. Well, and you look at your office mates and you say, hey, listen, I think this is an active shooter. Let's just go to our rendezvous point. And you might even have a pro word for it, a word that everybody recognizes as go to your rendezvous point. Let's call it Irene. Um, everybody says Irene, Irene. And you just hear Irene. Well, if you hear the word Irene, somebody's running down the hallway screaming Irene, and you've predetermined uh, and pre-planned that that's the word in distress for move to the rendezvous point, which might be across the street. It might be getting in your car and driving away. It might be your home. Then you hear that. That allows you to act instead of lull and wait for uh, more information. And so in the observation phase, it goes hand in hand with a planning 
which is strategic, figuring out what your next moves are going to be. You know, so many people nowadays grab their cell phone or like, and I'm not saying like grab your cell phone to record something. I'm saying like grab your cell phone to contact somebody. The, our first rule in a gunfight, uh, even when we take a casualty, is security needs to be established before you start working on a casualty. If that's the case, if that's the case, then even during an active shooting, you don't need to pick up your phone and call 911. You need to wor- worry about self-preservation and saving those around you. Then worry about getting on the phone and call 911. Because in that 30 seconds to a minute that you're sitting on the phone trying to figure out a way to call 911, that's potentially the time that you lost and could have potentially uh, uh, had uh, to give you the advantage. Because you could dial 911 while you're running. Uh, you could wait until you get out to the outer parking lot to dial 911. Focus on the physical movement after the observation where you, could, where you take in all the appropriate information to make a deliberate decision. There's no, there's no like figuring things out. You know, cognitively, when things, when people don't understand things that are happening around them, they, they tend to, they, they obviously tend to go into a stressful state of fight or flight, and it could be a low-grade stre- uh, version of it, but they tend to make bad decisions. One of those is lolling on target. We call it lolling on target or staying on the X. The most important thing for you to do is to flee and break contact as fast as you possibly can. I don't care if you break a window and dive out of that window and break your leg. It's better than getting killed in an active shooting, obviously. So I want you to focus on observing but using the protocols that you've pre-planned and worked out with other coworkers and then begin to flee. Now I say flee and fight. One, you need to flee being prepared always to fight. If you're running down the hallway and you know you're going to expect contact, like you're going to run into this guy, potentially going to run into this guy, you have to have a plan to be able to fight for your life. There is a proximity um, variable here that matters. Remember, if you're the, the further away you are from expected contact, let's say it's inevitable, you will run into this guy. And let's say there's no places to potentially get into a position that's advantageous. You're going to run into this guy. You have a decision to make. Do you wait? And do you wait to ambush this person in a more advantageous position? Or do you close the distance as fast as possible? Because if you're somewhere in between, you are in the maximum effective range of this this pistol or this carbine or this weapon system. And if you're going to close the distance, like... If you see him pull off into a room and you have a decision to make, and and maybe there's not anywhere advantageous for you to hide, then the alternative is go in and uh, close the distance as fast as you possibly can. Obviously, using the uh, you know the the proximity to him to your advantage. If he's turned his back on you, obviously that's what you want to close the distance as fast as possible and tackle that guy. Um, but you have to know what you're doing. Um, sometimes you you don't know what you're doing, and you just have to get through it. But what I'm telling you is proximity matters. You can't confront this guy in the middle of the hallway uh, with 15 feet separating you and him because he'll simply just raise his gun and end your life. But what you can do is make a decision whether or not, if it's inevitable that you're going to uh, run into him, that you close the distance 
and get on top of them, uh, making contact, or you commit to breaking contact. Uh, uh, and the other, the other consideration is you, know, you set up an ambush for them, uh, meaning you're setting up in the dead space, uh, left or right. You're setting up on the back end of a door when it comes to to slam them with a door and fight for your life. These are the considerations you have to consider strategically, meaning communicating about them, uh, coordinating with other people prior to it actually happening. You don't want to be figuring this out on the fly. I also say fight in the context that I want you to understand that if you have capability, if you have a concealed carry permit and weapon system in your MERS, purse, whatever it may be, you have a responsibility to defend life. Not just yours, but everybody around you. And that is a burden of responsibility that is owed uh, to all the human beings around you. Um, think, about the, think about the people who didn't have that um, opportunity, who had concealed carry pistols. I imagine like, you know, there, there's been cases of law enforcement officers, you know, you know being uh, armchair quarterback, whether or not they had the ability to go in there and save life or preserve life and they didn't do it. I could never live with myself. I could never live with myself knowing that I could have stopped uh, the needless killing of innocent people knowing I had a gun on me uh, that I could have defended life. Uh, with that being said, if you have the capability, train the capability, increase your capability, um, communicate to others about your capability and what, what you would do when it would happen. The conversation a lot of times, a lot of the times the conversation alone will benefit everybody who's involved. Uh, because, you know, even talking about it is a rehearsal. So observe, fight and flee, or flee and flight, uh, fight. Uh, and this could be used as an acronym called OFF. OFF. All right, I'm going to answer a few questions that I was asked uh, recently um, that, that belongs in the Tactical Review uh, podcast, which we're doing now. One of the things I was talked about uh, or was... Uh, uh, discussed was what I recommend in EDC car kit, everyday carry car kit. Understand your individual mobile platform, your vehicle is an extension of your capability, not just an extension of your capability, but think about it as an extension of your rucksack, your capacity, right? A lot of people, for example, if you carry a tourniquet holder, we sell an inside the waistband tourniquet holder for convenience for you carrying a North American Rescue tourniquet. I carried it in combat for eight rotations. I carried it as a contractor for seven rotations. I've seen it save lives. I've put it on people to save lives. Uh, it works. Now, on your person, you are limited in what you can carry. But your vehicle, your mobile vehicle, is an extension of that capability. So think of it that way. So maybe if I have a pistol that's a Glock 43 that I carry, a Triarch Systems Glock 43, on my person, I actually carry it in my, uh, uh, my fish uh, pond Merce. Um, it's like a fly fishing bag. So um, thanks, man, on the inside the waistband tourniquet holder on Instagram. Uh, but if I carry that pistol, I might carry another pistol or carbine in a, in a broader more capable rig or setup that increases my capability. Big shout out to 511 Tactical. Uh, we're on the uh, we're on a live podcast. That's a tactical review podcast. And uh, right now, 511 Tactical is tuning in. Make sure you guys follow 511. Uh, 
all the guys at 511. We love 511 and uh, doing some great things with those guys. Make sure you follow them. Um, but it's a it's an extension of your capability. So if you look at the tourniquet, for example, I might have a a medical kit inside my vehicle that's a more ro- robust version of it that could treat more people. Maybe it's a mass casualty pack. Um, so definitely have and extend all your capability using your car kit. We sell a vehicle trauma response kit inside of uh, at Um, but obviously you can't carry that on person, but it's good to carry in your vehicle. Um, counter surveillance. How do you do counter surveillance and what are the things to look for? The things that you do on a daily basis are your habits. It's the, it's the way that you operate. It's typically perceived as your behavior. Like if I see somebody doing something like this dude's picking his nose, well, that's a behavior. But from his perspective, it's a habit. It's something actionable that he does probably without even realizing he's doing it. And so what I tell people is when you look at observation, you have to deliberately inject the way in which you observe as a habit, but it needs to be conscious. Because a lot of things that we do as a habit, for example, brushing our teeth in the morning. We don't think about brushing our teeth in the morning. I mean, I take a shower and brush my teeth in the shower. And I'm, not, and I'm listening to the podca- a podcast at the same time. So I'm not necessarily thinking about what I'm doing when I'm brushing my teeth. Well, observation can't be unconscious, meaning you can't just glance and look and not observe or consciously take in information. So when I build habits around observation, uh, specifically even in counter surveillance, for example, if I go inside of a, a, a building, let's say I go inside of a, a restaurant. When I walk inside that restaurant, the first thing I do is scan the restaurant from left to right. It's not a sign of paranoia because it's just a sign of observation. Like people who look at me, they don't go, oh, that guy's paranoid. So I look and scan left to right, and I look at people, individuals, hands if I could see them, and then I scan left to right, and then I, I collect that data or information and recognizing if there's something wrong. You are very good. They, they call it the sixth sense, but people are very good at figuring out what's different in their environment. A lot of people like to ignore those things that they see in, those, in their environments. My, the best example of that is when you're laying in bed. When your lazy ass is laying in bed, nobody wants to get off their ass and go check out what the noise was. What was that big bang downstairs? I don't know. It's probably the cat or the dog or whatever it might be. When you need to be able to consciously snap yourself out of that and figure out what that is and then have a criteria to work out what you're going to do when you recognize it as being something bad. So on top of that, let's say I go into that same restaurant. I'm going to sit somewhere where my back is facing a wall and I'm looking at the exit. Again, preparedness is freedom. I'm not anxious. I'm not paranoid. I'm setting myself up for success. Not because I think that day specifically I'm going to wind up taking out a bad guy, but because I want to be set up for success and observation to identify the threat of maybe a bad guy. And when you're doing these things, you don't have to make them inconvenient in your life. You don't have to make them ridiculous. I mean, don't be the, I've seen the guys do it. They go into it with the room. It's like they, they have their new girlfriend and they do their little thing and they're like, oh yeah, I'm just scanning and make sure I'm protecting you and, you know, setting things up and, oh, I'll take that seat and just making it weird. If you instill it in your practice and your habits, 
and it's part of your life or your routine, things aren't are going to come off natural. And so observation is that conscious um, you know, way in which you look and scan your environment and take in information. And I have other protocols. If I'm sitting pumping gas at a gas station, you're vulnerable. In a lot of cases, when people get jacked at gas stations, they're getting jacked when they're pumping gas because you have your hand pumping the gas and your other hand um, probably in your pocket and you don't expect anything bad to happen. So what I do is when I start pumping gas, I look and scan all the way around me. If I see somebody who's kind of suspect, meaning they're they're not giving me the right vibe, I might set my posture up to be able to confront them or face them. So I'll turn my upper torso where I'm chest facing them to where as something happened, you know, I could pull the gas um, uh, uh, nozzle out and spray them in the face with gas. Or I could, you know, switch hands to my non-dominant hand and have access to my concealed carry pistol. You have to think about those things. That's not some extreme prepper shit. That's just common sense for me. And maybe it's extreme to think about those things. But to me, being the victim of a violent crime or potentially being murdered um, and then not seeing it coming is a bigger deal um, and, and more extreme than not preparing for your individual environment. So I hope that helped, guys. Um, also, speed of security. You know, I got the question, hey, speed of security, explain some of the processes that you're thinking about that. Here's my thoughts on it. Speed is security in some instances. What, what I want you to understand is, you know, I look at the crisis site, which is where the bad guy is, as the center or the nucleus. And then what I, what I see around that is centric circles. I see these, these rings, right, that have different phases which dictate my behavior and movement. The example is, let's say there's an active shooter in a school. Well, I teach law enforcement officers and civilians during gunfighting, pistol, and carbine courses that if they get out of their vehicle and they're a block away from the school, they their posture and the way they behave when they move with themselves and their gun to the crisis point is a different tactic than when they're on site walking or uh, surreptitiously walking down the hallway of the school. So I teach people, for example, on the outer ring where speed is security to suitcase their gun, meaning grab their gun at the foregrip of their, of their gun and accelerate the momentum of their body with their arms and legs as fast as possible. Sprint. And then have the contingency built in to be able to react and align the gun or bring the gun up to their eye to be able to engage a threat. But when they get into the next phase, they break down, meaning they break down into another phase of behavior, whereby let's say we're getting closer. Let's say we're running across the lawn of the school. Well, now maybe I'll have both hands on the gun holding it depressed uh, underneath my eye, meaning I'm not looking down the optic because if I do, I narrow my field of view and, my, and, and ruin my peripheral. So maybe it's just depressed, but I'm running still in order to close that distance and get out of the open. Remember, speed is security in the open. If you're moving within obstacles, you could determine your own speed. But when you're moving in the open, speed is security because you're reducing your exposure and time. So now let's say we breach the front end of the school and we're in the hallway. Well, now, you know what? I might have 
that red dot on my EOTech or my Vortex Optic in the lower portion of my field of view or my vision. Because now I know I just need to snap that gun a millisecond into position and then break a shot. And I, I want you to understand that speed is security in a lot of instances. And the proximity to the threat will determine uh, the way in which you move and your individual tactics. Um, I was asked about stress mitigation. And I'll quickly say this because we talk about this often, but uh, we have podcasts on this. Stress mitigation. One, breathe. You suppress your breath. Under stress, people suppress your breath. Combat, breathe. Breathe, breathe, breathe. If you concentrate on the out, you will naturally breathe in. It's a yoga tactic. Breathe out. Make sure you're doing that because your body won't autonomously do it for you. You have to force that breath. Your, your body wants to suppress your breath to retain oxygen in your organs. Positive affirmation. If you say you're a piece of crap, you're not going to get out of this situation, more than likely you're not. You're not going to get, it's not going to get better with time with a negative mindset. Reaffirming or introducing positive thoughts, subconscious communication is what's going to get you out of that. Tell yourself you're going to be okay. You're going to make it. That's going to help you. I promise it. Staying conscious. Remember, under stress, especially in fight or flight, you're going to become unconscious. Your, your mind doesn't want you present because it wants to save all the uh, energy in you for running away from or fleeing the threat or combating the threat. And so it's not advantageous to overthink things or, or stay conscious. Staying conscious allows you, and by default, breathing keeps you conscious. It keeps you on the forefront of your mind to make good decisions, to be able to assess and be more situa- situationally aware. Also, uh, I was asked, home defense, what's the best practice? Well, one, the best practice is to have a firearm within reach to be able to defend your life. Um, two, to have a safe room and a means of communication in order to communicate your situation to law enforcement. Because in the case that you are confronted, especially in the middle of the night where um, you might know the bad guy's coming before they know that you're there, um, you have to have the advantage of communication and relaying what's going on in your own house to get first responders on the move to your location. But have a safe room to where you can go back, retreat with your family, and you could easily defend that. Um, also, I was asked about uh, PTSD, and I, I'm about a minute out from remaining on the Phil Krause Survival page. I want to say, number one, thank you for all your support on the Phil Krause Survival page. Uh, make sure you guys use Mike as a coupon code to save 10%. We have the Philcraft Expo all weekend, so we're going to be tied up. We'll try to post as much uh, content as possible for you guys to feed into. Uh, also, I just want to say thank you for tuning in to this uh, live podcast of the Tactical Review Podcast. Uh, I appreciate everything that you guys do for us. Um, so, yeah, I'll share this for 24 hours on the Philcraft Survival page that's live, but I'll continue with the podcast. Thanks, guys. Peace out to Instagram. Okay, so we did uh, just end that on the uh, live feed on uh, Instagram. But I want to finish up because I was asked, how do you deal with family and PTSD? And w- here's what I want to I talk to you guys about in, in, in dealing with PTSD. So I am service disabled. 
and I am a veteran, obviously, of special operations. I am service disabled. I am rated at 90% according to Veteran Affairs. And I have what's called uh, PTSD and TBI combined, meaning that the symptoms of my PTSD are attributed to traumatic brain injury, um, meaning forgetfulness, depression, anxiety, which a lot of those things that I don't deal with anymore, but I, I have dealt with in the past. And so they tie them in together because TBI um, doesn't get any better, especially with a CTE or significant brain injury. Look, I've been blown up a lot. I've been in tons of explosive breaches. Uh, I've been hit uh, with IEDs in proximity. Um, I've shot Carl Gustav's 84 millimeter rockets in combat. Um, I've taken concussion from guns. I was an instructor for years. I mean, there, my head's been rocked more times than I can count. So there are a whole bunch of effects that come with traumatic brain injury and post-traumatic stress. But a lot of these things have major effects on families, friends, relationships, and then obviously the individual's mental health. What I will tell you is you have to develop a support network. If you're the person who's facing it or facing it as a family friend or a spouse, you have to develop a support network in order to uh, deal with post-traumatic stress. You have to be able to have people to communicate with. You have to have a network um, that can give you feedback not only as a support infrastructure in family and friends, but also in medical practitioners and mental health providers. When initially, when I got off active duty in Texas, I used to go to a counselor who was a, a Marine in Vietnam who had varied experiences in trauma and dealt with a lot, but I was able to relate to and that uh, worked for the Veteran Affairs. And that helped a lot. But getting perspective is is uh, beneficial. One, identifying that there is a problem. There's n it's not, it's not um, bad to identify that you have post-traumatic stress. I mean, to me, you're more of a man or more of a woman, better off as a person by admitting uh, what issues you do have. Now, I have seen a lot of this victimhood mentality in veterans who identify they have PTS and that have abused systems, abused uh, family members, and and abuse kind of like the uh, understanding that people have. But maybe that's not attributed to their their selfishness or attributed to the fact um, that they're being uh, that way. It might be the simple fact that they have PTS. It might be uh, attributed to the TBI. So maybe they weren't like that way, but maybe they're acting that way because of, of that. And what I will tell you is uh, don't feel like you're alone. Um, I do know people who, you know, I've been at war a lot. I have accumulated 40-plus years of war and then a couple years of contracting in austere environments. And so when I think about all those experiences, even though I had a great experience in special operations, they definitely had an effect on my psyche, on my, on my psychology. And it, it's okay to admit that. It's okay to communicate that. In fact, when somebody says they don't have, it's not that it's not that I want people to admit they have post-traumatic stress. I want people to understand that conditionally, when you've operated at that pace in those environments under trauma, being exposed to that, you do not come out unscathed. 
there will be ramifications. There will be second and third order effects that will affect everything. You know, I've seen buddies who have relationship uh, issues uh, that their whole lives have fallen apart, bad decisions. I myself have been there. Um, so I, I understand those things um, have gross effects on your life and can directly be attributed to that. You know, like if you're making bad decisions and, and people like to go, oh, he, he didn't have PTS. He was just cheating on his old lady. Well, let me tell you something. The, more than likely, the reason he was cheating on his old lady was because of PTS or CTE or TBI. Because you, you're, the, the damage that's done to your brain from war um, does not get better with time. It, it, it's degenerative, especially with CTE. And so you only see it get worse with time. It's why all these uh, NFL players were going batshit crazy, doing crazy stuff, and everybody's like, holy crap, this is like, man, these people are crazy. No. They have severe CTE trauma, head trauma, brain damage that's affecting their decision-making, affecting their lives. Um, understanding and being educated is the first thing that I would recommend for all families is get educated together and understand it's a process. Understand that, uh, that it can be better, that there are venues, there are nonprofits, Warrior Heart Foundation, um, uh, Coast to Coast, which is our big advocates for for their brothers and, and more. There are groups and organizations and communities. There's service dogs. There's a whole bunch of things that you could do in order to get better. So it's not the end of the road. CBD. Uh, I you know Big shout out to Uncana. Uncana.com. I'm a big fan of, of cannabinoids and, uh, and CBD. Why? Because I don't get high off of it, but it benefits me in, in lowering my anxiety level, uh, allowing me to sleep at night, and it's just damn good for you. Hell, you could put it out as an ointment uh, to reduce inflammation. Um, so yeah, I, I hope that helped, man. I hope that helped for anybody who's listening. Um, I deal with this stuff all the time as an advocate, but as somebody who's directly affected and being diagnosed with PTS as well as TBI. But I'm not afraid to talk about it. I mean, you shouldn't be afraid to talk about it. I don't talk about it because I want people's money or people to feel sorry for me. I just want people to understand that the way it works in our heads uh, and, th and this just isn't exclusive to military guys or gals. This, this is across the board in life. If you're a human being, you are vulnerable to life experiences that are traumatic. Uh, that's kind of how the world works. If you haven't been traumatized in life, um, then you're at a huge disadvantage because trauma teaches you the most about life, uh, especially coming out of it on the other end. Guys, that was this is the end of the Tactical Review Podcast. I want to say, first of all, I appreciate you guys' support. Without you guys and gals that support PhilCrossRevival.com and our mission, we wouldn't be able to do what we do. Um, I, I always appreciate uh, what you guys do for us and, and the fact that you guys go on our website, PhilCrossRevival.com or PhilCrapMobility.com, and spend your hard-earned money with us. I mean, there's so many companies out there you guys are buying our hats, our equipment, signing up for a training. I think it's amazing uh, all the things that you guys do for us. I want to say there is a, a TCCC course. We did get asked at Mobility uh, Overland Expo uh, to put on a tactical combat casualty care course in addressing trauma that's going to save your life. We set the dates August 17th or August 18th. It's a one-day course. It's TCCC certified, meaning you will get registered with NAMT and you will get certified. It's a course that will help you with all the things that we're talking about in saving your life 
and hemorrhaging, you know, stopping the bleed, um, and and whether it's saving you or your family member's life. Again, that's August 17 or August 18, and you could sign up at philcraftsurvival.com or philcraftmobility.com. Hey, guys, that's all I have. I appreciate it. I hope you guys like this podcast. I'll start doing more of these. these. This is called the Tactical Review, where we talk about the most recent tactics up to date um, based on things that are going on in the world. I appreciate you guys. Until next time, stay alert, stay alive. Stay alive.